Good evening. Uh, my name is Josh Stewart. I'm the children and family pastor here. In case you didn't know who I am, and I have the great privilege to communicate God's word with you today. Um, and so let's open up in a word of prayer before we get started. God, you're so good. You're so amazing. You're so magnificent, Lord. And 30 minutes of a sermon can never do justice to the goodness and the greatness and the sovereignty and the love that you have for us. I pray today, Lord, as, as I communicate your word, Lord, I pray that you would preach a better message than I preach today. I pray the Holy Spirit that you would go out among the people in this room and open their eyes to the depths of their sins so they can better see the depths of your grace. And I pray, Lord, that tonight that you're glorified in all that is said and all that is done. We praise you that you're a mighty God. We praise you that you're a God that is personal as well and wants to teach each of us something in this room, wants to connect, wants to know, wants to have a relationship with each one of us. And you want us to continuously grow in that relationship throughout our lives. And so I pray that tonight is that step, whether it's for the first time in somebody's life or that someone who's known you for years just grows deeper tonight in their relationship with you. Thank you for your word, God, and thank you for giving me the, the opportunity to communicate it. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Um, this might come to a shock to a few of you in this room, but when I was in high school, I didn't always make the wisest decisions. Um, I know most of you in high school probably made very wise decisions. Um, but one time in particular, when I was in ninth grade, me, my brother, and two buddies of mine made a very poor decision. Um, it was over the Christmas break of our ninth grade year, and we had this awesome opportunity to go to a lock-in at a local church. And this lock-in was all night. It was from when the sun went down until when the sun went up, and it was awesome. I mean, we were playing basketball, there was food, there was other games, and even a part of the night, we went to a rock climbing arena. So it was this building that was covered in these um, walls that you could climb, like rock climbing. And it was awesome, and we were there, and we were having a blast. And so many kids came to this event that the church didn't have enough vehicles to get everybody to the rock climbing place in one trip. And so when we t left to the church and went to the rock climbing place, they had to take a few loads over. They went one load, they came back and got the second load and brought them over. Well, it was late, probably I'm assuming around 12 o'clock, and they were ready to leave the rock climbing place and go back to the church for the rest of the lock-in. So the youth pastor said, all right, who in this room wants to stay for the second load a little bit longer, and we'll come back and get you? Well, me, my brother, and two friends of our, my two friends were like, sure, we'll hang out a little bit longer. And so we go back into the rock climbing arena, and the buses leave. Well, the owner of the arena started to walk around. He was probably picking up trash, seeing who was left. But the guy was not the nicest guy. Uh, if you can imagine being stuck in a few hours inside of a building with about 50 high schoolers, you probably aren't having the best night. And so he's running around or walking around trying to see who's left, and we didn't like him. We kind of thought he was um, a little rude. And so one of us had the bright idea at 12 o'clock at night to run out of the building out into the parking lot. And so we take off out of the building into the freezing cold, and then we decide to go into the woods that are next to the building and hide from this guy. And so we take off into the woods, hiding from him in the middle of December. It was freezing outside. And we're sitting in the woods and we're laughing. And so the guy comes around. No one else was left in the building. He locks up, get in his car, and he leaves. And so we're just laughing. Oh, man, look at this guy. He thought everybody was left. It was, all right, well, any minute now, the bus should be come back and get us. And so we sit there. Ten minutes go by. 
20 minutes go by, an hour goes by, and no one has come to get us. So you got four high schoolers sitting in these woods, and this is before the time that everybody had cell phones, so none of us had a cell phone, and we're sitting there in the freezing cold, and to make it even worse, the area we were in was like an industrial area, so there was no restaurants, there was no like stores, it was just some like factories, and we were sitting there as high school. I mean, we felt absolutely helpless. Like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna handle this situation? And so we're sitting there, freezing cold, just absolutely helpless. And finally, we were like, we had to do something. And so a few hours went by, I felt like it was like eight hours, it was probably only two or three, we just start walking. And so we're walking down the road, two o'clock in the morning by this time, and we're just like, and we finally pull up to this trucking station. It was a small um, glass, I mean, it was tiny. I mean, it was just a small glass building and there's a man sitting in there. So we go up and we knock on the window and this guy probably thinks a lot of bad thoughts about us. And so we're like, can we come in and use your phone? And at first he kind of doesn't want it. And we're like, we really need to use your phone. So he finally lets us in. We call the church and they hang up on us because they thought we were doing a prank on them. And we were like, oh my goodness. So finally, we called them again. They realized it wasn't a prank. The youth pastor admitted he completely forgot about us and came back and got us. And he wasn't fired for some reason. And, um, and it's funny, I told my parents the story last night because I was thinking through it. And I just realized we actually never told them the story until last night. And they're like, oh, I think we would have said something. And I said, well, maybe that's why we didn't say anything to you. So anyways, the big point of the story is that we were in a situation that we were absolutely helpless. And I know that some of y'all have been in other situations in your life that you felt absolutely helpless. Maybe it's a situation where you can look back and kind of laugh about it like I did, but maybe it's a situation that was really scary and really helpless and you had no idea what you were gonna do. And even looking back on it now, it kind of is hard to think about. The reality is we've been in, in physical situations that are very helpless, but we actually have a spiritual situation that is even more helpless than the most helpless situation you can ever be in. We have a spiritual situation that is so helpless, there is nothing that we can do on our own to get us out of the situation. And so what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about this helpless situation, but the good news is, is that we're going to see what happens to us, what can happen to us in this helpless situation. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to 1 John. Um, we're going to be in chapter 2 today. Um, we're going to go back to chapter 1 a lot today in our talk because in order to understand chapter 2, you have to have a pretty good grasp of chapter 1. So you can have your Bibles and you can turn there. The good news is, is me, my brother, and, all, and two of my friends, all four of us are currently pastors in the ministry right now. So there is hope in Christ for the foolish ninth grader out there. So that's encouragement to everyone who has kids or will have kids. All right, let's see what the word of the Lord has to say in John chapter 1, verse 2. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
So there's kind of a, a big idea or a main sentence that can summarize what we just read. And that main sentence is this, is that in our sinful state, we have an advocate who transforms our lives. In our sinful state, in our helpless state, we have an advocate that transforms our lives. So the three points of the sermon today are going to be broken down into that one sentence. We're going to first examine our sinful state. We're going to secondly examine who our advocate is. And thirdly, we're going to see how he transforms our lives. So the first thing we see is our sinful state. Look what it says in the first half of verse 1. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So John comes before his audience and he says, my little children. Now John wasn't writing to little children. John was writing to adults, but he was coming to them as a father figure. He's saying, I'm your spiritual father and I'm writing to you today. And the desire of why I'm writing these words today, why I'm writing this book to you today, is so that you may not sin. My desire in writing this is that you won't sin. That first, that seems like a pretty simple request But we got to look back at chapter 1 to really see the weight of what John just asked his audience to do. In chapter 1, verse 5, John paints a picture of who God is. In chapter 5, he says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness, none at all. And so he says God is light. Now when he refers to this, that God being light, this is everything that is positive about God. It's God's holiness. It's God's perfection. It's God's righteousness. It is God's truth. He says that God is light. God is holy. God is righteous. God is true. God is all that is what is all that is good is God. And when you use the word light, we see that light exposes things. He's saying God is this enormous flashlight that shines on everything. And what light does is light brings things to the surface. Light exposes things. Light makes things clear. And what he's saying is that God is this massive light and he shines. He shines his truth. He shines his righteousness. He shines his holiness onto all things. And it exposes things. It exposes who we are. It exposes the wickedness of this world. And he goes on to say that God is light and in him there is no darkness. Because darkness is the opposite of light. But darkness that he's referring to here is sinfulness. So what it means to sin, it simply means to miss the mark. Or what I tell my two and my four-year-old, that sin is when we disobey God's holy commands. And so what John is saying is that God is light. He never misses the mark. He never disobeys himself. He is righteous. He is holy. He is full of truth. So verse 5, he paints this picture of how amazing God is. But then we see soon after that in verse 8 and verse 10, He tells us how corrupt and stained with sin we are. Look what he says in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, "If If you say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. What John was doing is he was fighting against a false teaching of the day. And there's these false teachers of the day who were saying that you could reach a spiritual level of perfection. That you could become so spiritual in your lives that you would be perfect and you would sin no more. And what John is saying is no, is if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves. That you're corrupted with sin, that you're stained with sin. That you are in a sinful state and there's no level of spirituality that you can earn that can take away that. You are stained and covered with sin. 
And then look what he says down in verse 10. He says, and if you say you have not sinned, you make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So then he goes on to say, not only have you sinned, but if you go to say that you've never sinned, that you've never committed a sin before, he says, you're calling God a liar. See, in verse 8, what he's saying is, if you say you do not sin, but then in verse 10, he goes to say, if you say that you've never sinned, then you call God a liar, that everyone sins, that everyone has committed a sin, that we were all in this helpless, sinful state. He's making it abundantly clear that God is righteous and God is holy. And he's making it abundantly clear that you and I are stained and corrupted with sin. And there's nothing that we can do on our own in order to get out of it. See, I want you guys to see the weight of what he's requesting in chapter 2 when he says, my greatest desire for you is not to sin. He's not asking them to do something very simple. He's not saying, I hope that you'll stop eating junk food and start eating healthier. My hope for you is that you have better table manners and stop chewing with your mouth full. What he's asking them is a weighty, weighty thing. He goes in chapter 1 and tells them that they're stained with sin, they're covered with sin, they will always sin, they have sinned, and then in, verse, in chapter, verse 1 of chapter 2, he goes on to say, but my greatest desire for you is that you don't sin. That sounds crazy to me. Why would John do that? Why would he make that statement? Before we get into that, I want us to really see what the weight of what chapter 1 has for each one of us. See, some of us in this room need to realize the depths of our sin this evening. We need to realize that we are covered and stained with sin. That we are sinful human beings. But then there's some of you in this room that you are very aware of your sinful state. Because you find yourself daily doing the things you don't want to do. Saying the things you don't want to say. Acting in ways you don't want to act. Thinking things you don't want to think. You make promise after promise to God that you'll never do that again. But then you find yourself messing up over and over again. And you're thinking, what must I do? Is there any hope for me? Am I so stained with sin that nothing can cleanse me? Because you've done everything you can on your own, and you feel helpless. So we see our sinful state. But the reason why John makes such a big request in verse 1, the first half, is because he knew what he was going to write in the second half of verse 1. So we see in our sinful state, we have an advocate. Look what he says in the second half of verse 1 and verse 2. This might be my two favorite verses in all the Bible. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John comes to them and says, my desire for you is that you don't sin. But you will sin, because I've made that clear in chapter 1. And when you do sin, he says, you have an advocate with the Father. Now this word advocate has a double meaning in the Greek. It has a personal meaning, but it also has a legal meaning. So when he says that you have an advocate, the first thing it means is personal. It means that you have a helper. This is the same word, the Greek word that is used to the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15, when Jesus says, a helper will come to you. After I leave, a helper is going to come. The Holy Spirit will come. What he's saying is that before the Father, that you and I have a helper. 
Somebody who personally helps us. This is a personal statement. He doesn't help us generally. He helps you and I individually before the Father. He's our helper. But then he also, the word advocate has a legal meaning. And it means an attorney or a legal representative. He says, you have a helper before the Father, but you have a legal representative before the Father. And this helper and legal representative is pleading for you continuously before the Father. He's continuously pleading for you. He's continuously helping you legally and personally before the Father. This is a huge statement that he's making here. He's saying he doesn't just do it every once in a while, every six months or a year or every time you mess up. But he's saying he's continuously representing you before the Father. That you have a helper, an advocate, an attorney before the Father who's representing you. But who is this attorney? Is it just Ken Nugent? One call, that's all. That's his claim. Can we just give Ken Nugent a call? Can he represent us before the Father? No, he can't. Because look what he says. He says, you have an advocate before the Father, a personal legal representative before the Father. And who is it? He says, it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. Or Jesus Christ, the one who is righteous. The one who is innocent. The one who always keeps God's commands. The one who is sinless, who never missed the marks. That one, he is your representative. The righteous one, Jesus Christ. We don't have just some attorney. We have the righteous one, the holy one, the perfect one who represents you before the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. But why is it such a big deal that he's righteous? Why is it such a big deal that he's never missed the mark? Look at verse 2. He says, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John uses a big word there, the word propitiation, or some translation says the atoning sacrifice. And that word propitiation is so important for us to understand. And what propitiation means, it means that you and I, because of our sins, that we deserve God's righteous anger. It means that we deserve God's holy wrath, that our sins deserve punishment. And that punishment is God's holy wrath. And to say that Jesus is our propitiation, what he's saying here is that Jesus has claimed you and I's, our sins, as his own. Jesus saying, the sins that they've committed, I claim those as mine. I've claimed them as I've committed them, and they haven't. Think about that. That sin that you've committed, that one that just gnaws at you, that one that you always try to forget about, the one that just comes up at the worst moments, you still have a sick feeling in your stomach every time you think about it. That sin, Jesus says, is mine. But not just that sin, all the sins that you've ever committed, that he claims them as his own. Not only does he claim them, but he receives the righteous anger of God's wrath that those sins deserve, that you deserve. And he took those on the cross. As he was on the cross, God poured his holy, righteous anger onto Jesus because Jesus claimed your sins as his own. But he didn't just claim them as his own. He didn't just receive the punishment, but he also has earned God's favor for you. See, he says he's Jesus Christ, the one who is righteous, the one who is innocent, the one who never misses the mark. 
And that one earned God's favor. See, God had no reason to be upset with Jesus. He had no reason to punish Jesus because he's the righteous one. He never messed up. And so what Jesus does, he does this role reversal that he says, their sins I claim punish me instead of punishing them. But that favor that I earned, Father, show it to them instead of showing it to me. (laughs) Think about this. This is so amazing. This is how awesome our God is. Is that he takes your sins, he takes your punishment onto himself, and he earns the favor that you could never earn. In our sinful state, we have an advocate, and this advocate is Jesus Christ, the one who is righteous. But then he gives us even better news at the second half of verse 2. He goes, not, he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, what John is saying here, he's saying that Jesus becoming this advocate, this legal representative who takes their punishment, this is not just for you that I'm originally writing to, that this is available for people all over the world. This is available for people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and this is available for people in Lawrence County, Georgia. This is available to you because Jesus just didn't just die for a certain group of people. He died for the sins of the whole world. And so what is our response to that? How do we respond to that? Well, John tells us that we believe and that we confess our sins. At the end of his gospel, John writes that he wrote the gospel of John in order that people may believe. And by believing in Jesus, the Messiah, they can have life in his name. So we're called to believe. We're called to trust in Jesus. But look what he says. I personally skipped over Verse 9 of chapter 1, because this is what it says. He says, but if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we believe in Jesus and we confess our sins, if we admit that we're sinners, if we confess our sins to him, it says that he's faithful and it says that he's just. He's faithful because he always keeps his promises. That means that he's faithful to the writers of John. That means he's faithful to us today. That means he's faithful 20 million generations from now if the earth is still around because God keeps his promises. He's faithful. We don't have to be worried that he might not do it anymore. He might run out of grace and goodness. He's faithful. He made a promise. He'll keep it. But the second word is even more important. It says that he's just. That's why he keeps his promise. That's why when we can confess our sins, because he's just, because our legal representative, Jesus, legally met the demands that you and I couldn't meet by living a righteous life. And then he received God's punishment. He received God's righteous anger onto us. So God was satisfied. Jesus served the sentence that we deserve to serve. And because he poured on Jesus his holy, righteous anger, He's satisfied. The demand has been met. And so you and I, when we confess our sins, we can be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Let's illustrate what John just said to us. Imagine you have God the Father sitting in his righteous throne room. The angels are singing to him. He's sitting on his throne full of truth, full of glory, full of holiness, full of everything that is righteous. And he's sitting there. And you got Jesus who comes before him and says, listen, I, I know what Josh just did. I know that he sinned once again. I know. 
But see, I lived the life he couldn't live. I died the death that he deserved. The righteous anger that his sins deserve, I experienced that on the cross. So now, he is righteous before you. He is holy before you because he believes in me and he's confessed his sins. You no longer have to punish him, God, because you punished me instead. And Jesus isn't trying to manipulate God. Don't get that wrong. This was God's idea. God sent Jesus. It was God's plan. And so God is rejoicing when Jesus does that. He's rejoicing that we have an advocate before the Father who helps us, who represents us, and who was our propitiation for our sins. What great truth that God's Word teaches us today. And so if you're a non-Christian in this room today, are you trying to be your own advocate before the Father? Are you trying to be your own legal representative, your own helper? Because of your sinfulness, that will not work. Come to Jesus, the righteous advocate. But if you are a Christian in this room, do you truly believe that Jesus is continuously representing you before the Father? Do you really believe that moment by moment, second by second, that he's representing you and that he did everything necessary? And how is your life being transformed by that? How is your day-to-day lives changing because of that? So we see that we have, in our sinful state, in our helpless state, we have an advocate. But that advocate transforms our lives. Look what it says in verses 3 through 6. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he's walked. So it gives us this, this picture of who Christ is and what he's done. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. See, once again, he's fighting against false teachers of the day. You have the same false teachers who were saying that you could reach a level of perfection were also saying that it didn't matter how you lived your life. The only thing that matters is how much knowledge you had about God, how much facts you had about God. If you knew a lot of things about God, if you gathered all the facts, then that was enough. And what he's saying here is no. He says, you want to understand how you know and understand God, how you know God, how you personally receive this? He says, you're going to keep his commandments. But I think our minds can also often go a few different directions when we hear that. That can be burdensome to some of us because we're thinking, oh my goodness, do I keep his commands enough? Do I go to church enough? Do I read my Bible enough? Am I kind enough to people? Do I act like a Christian enough? We have this like, burden on us. And others, we just we get a checklist out. We get the, the grocery list out, right? So we, we check off, all right, I went to church this week. I read my Bible this week. I was pretty nice to that person at the grocery store. Okay, yep, I'm good. All right, well, then I must be a Christian because I checked all the boxes. But I don't think that's all what John is saying. I think what John is saying in verses 3 through 6 can be summarized in one sentence. 
And what he's saying is, is what we do flows from who we are. What he's saying is what we do as people flows from who we are. He just gave them the best news in the world. He said, you are sinful. You are stained with sin and you will always sin. But you have an advocate, the righteous one who took your sins upon himself, died the death you deserve, rose victoriously, and if you confess those sins, you'll be cleansed from all of your unrighteousness. All of that sinful stain that I just talked about, you'll be cleansed from. And if we truly grasp that, if we truly believe in Jesus, then our lives are going to change. Look what it says in verse 4. He says, whoever says, I know him, I have knowledge of him, I have a relationship with him, I know what you just said, John. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. What he's saying is, what you do will flow from who you are. And if you've truly been transformed by Jesus, then your lives are going to change. You're going to desire to live a holy life. You're going to desire to live in a way that honors him. You're going to desire to keep his commandments. I mean, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. And that's our motivation. Our motivation is not this burden because we feel like we have to or this to-do list that we check off. Our motivation is love for God. We do it because we love God. And look what John says in verse 5. says, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. There's a debate on what exactly that love is. Is it our love for God? Is it God's love for us? I believe it's our love for God. That when you keep his commandments, when you understand what he's done from you, that God's, your love towards God is going to be made perfect or made complete. Because you're living a life out of love for God. And so you don't need to receive it as a burden or receive it as a checklist. Live in a way that honors God and glorifies him. You will sin. You will mess up. John said that. There's no level of perfection in Christianity. Jesus is the only one that was perfect. But what he's saying is, is that you and I are able to live lives out of love for God. We desire to live holy lives. We desire to honor him in the things that we do, in the things that we say, in the way that we act. But when you fail, you have an advocate with the Father. I think of what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, Present your bodies as holy sacrifices before him. In view of God's mercy, in view of what he's done for you, live a life that you're a living sacrifice to him. That you do what he wants to do and not what you want to do. But he says the motivation is God's mercy. The motivation is what John just said here. That's our motivation, our love for God, because he's our advocate and he's our propitiation. It's because of that that we live in a way that honors and glorifies God. Because what we do will flow from who we are. If we've been saved, if we've been redeemed, if we've been cleansed from all unrighteousness before the Father, then we're going to live like people in thanksgiving and praise and gratitude to God. It's an invitation to live in a way that honors him. I'm reminded of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. And Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, which means no one liked him because he stole money, and he stole their money. And he was willing to climb a tree like a child in order to see Jesus. And Jesus sees him, and he goes into his house, which nobody did. 
And we see that because the religious leaders grumbled. Why is he hitting with the sinner, the worst of the worst? And he talks to Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus experiences salvation. Because it says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. And he saved the lost Zacchaeus. And what does Zacchaeus do in response to that? How does he show Jesus he loves him? How does he show his gratitude? He says, this money, this money that I've stolen, this money that has become my God, I'll give it to the poor. And I'll give everybody what I've taken to them plus four times as much. Because Zacchaeus understood that what you do flows from who you are. And Zacchaeus understood that his love from God sprang from everything within him. It wasn't a burden that he went and did this. It wasn't because he felt obligated. Maybe Jesus wouldn't say he had a good time. Or maybe Jesus would take away my salvation if I don't give all this money away. It was out of joy. It says in joy that he received Jesus into his home. And then he gives all that he has. This God of his was shattered because he experienced the true God in Jesus. And that's the invitation to all of us in this room. We have an advocate in our sinful state, and this advocate transforms our lives. We'll keep his commandments out of love and out of gratitude of all that he's done for us. That's an amazing God that we serve. So in our sinful state, we have an advocate that transforms our lives. And so if you're a non-Christian in this room, I hope today that this message, that you see how mighty and righteous and holy and kind and merciful our God is. And I hope you see how little and small and sinful you are. And in view of that mercy, that you're led to repentance and faith in who Jesus is. And if you're a Christian in this room, I hope that you see how holy and righteous and compassionate and loving and gracious our God is. And I hope you see how little and sinful you are and that there is nothing that we can do apart from the great God that saved us. And so I would hope that your motivation when you leave this room is to live holy lives, lives that have been transformed by this advocate. That the whole world, that your neighbors, that your co-workers, that your family members will see someone who's been transformed by the Redeemer who saves. And you'll be the opportunity to share about this great God who's rescued them. Their lives are transformed by this wonderful, wonderful advocate. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the truth of this message. Thank you for the truth of this reality, God. It's so hard to sometimes grasp. So hard to even fully understand. And I pray, Lord, that that we daily renew our minds in the promises that you've given us, the promise that you give to us in chapter 2. And when we're doubting that we have an advocate, when we're doubting that our sins have been cleansed, when we're doubting that you really were a propitiation, I pray that you remind us of your promise, that you're faithful and just to do what you say you're going to do. And in light of that, God, our lives are transformed. We live in ways that honor you and glorify you, and our motivation is love and gratitude and your mercy and your goodness. I pray that all of us will look more like you, Jesus, after this message. Thank you. You're such a good God. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
We're going to sing a song, and if you guys have anything you want to say or talk about, I'll be down front.